We are journeying through the book of Acts this fall. Uh, We begun it uh, several weeks ago. What you need to know about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts is part two of a two-part story. It's the sequel of what the story that began in the gospel according to Luke. Luke, the historian, wrote this account of part one, the gospel according to Luke, and then part two, the book of Acts. And what he was doing in part one and part two is he was telling one story. And it's the story of the mission of Jesus in and for the world. What did Jesus come to do? What did he come to accomplish? And how did he intend on changing the world. It started with the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, but the story of Jesus continues in the book of Acts through the church. That's part one and part two. In fact, for a stretch of church history, the book of Acts was actually called the continued Acts of Jesus, even though in the first five verses, Jesus ascends to be with the Father. He disappears, but the continued Acts of Jesus happens through his church. And so that's the story of the book of Acts, the continued acts of Jesus through his church, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're following the story of the original church, the Acts chapter two church. The Holy Spirit's descended at Pentecost. He's indwelled in the apostles and he sends them out to bear witness about who Jesus is, what he's done, and to make the world a brand new place uh, with the love of Jesus. So that's kind of the backdrop of the book of Acts we've been walking through. Uh, we are now in chapter four. This is the follow-up, kind of uh, the, the, the ending, the conclusion of a story that began last week that Daryl preached about where Peter and John, two of the early apostles, heal a man in chapter three outside the temple, a man that's been crippled since birth. He's been crippled for more than 40 years, and Peter and John heal him in front of all the people in the temple and the temple outer gates. Well, that healing causes a little bit of a stir uh, in the powers that be, and so we read, we're going to read uh, the follow-up to that healing. I'm going to warn you that this reading is long. It's basically the entire chapter of chapter four. It's 31 verses. If you've got a problem with that, then you have a problem with the Bible, okay? Uh, but we're going to read all 31 verses. Even though it's long, I won't apologize for it too much, but we need kind of the whole story uh, to set the table for the, for the punch at the end, uh, for the point of this whole uh, sequence of events. So if you'll turn with me in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or a phone. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, that's John and Peter, and put them in custody in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? How did you heal this man, they're saying. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you and the the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, They were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, that's Peter and John, they went to their friends, the other apostles, the early church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now they're gonna quote a psalm, they're quoting Psalm chapter two that David wrote, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, brief recap of what we just read, because I know it was a lot. Um, last week, again, we saw Peter and John heal a man outside the temple who had been crippled since birth. And that healing, that miraculous healing at the temple in front of a large crowd, that word begins to spread back to what is known as the Sanhedrin, this council of Jewish leaders. This is the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. This is the same Jewish Supreme Court, this is the same Sanhedrin that 60 days before crucified Jesus unjustly. They put him on trial and made charges against him and accusations against him without evidence and crucified him. The same people who hated Jesus enough to kill him now have two of their apostles, two of Jesus apostles before them not doing things that they like again. And so the Sanhedrin that wants to get rid of Peter and John are saying, look, this miracle they've done, it's causing a stir. They're gaining followers. We need to shut this down. And so what they do is for the night, they throw Peter and John in jail. And they say, we got to figure this out. We're going to put them in jail. They haven't done anything wrong. They just healed a man who's been crippled since birth, but we got to shut this down. So let's put these men in jail tonight. And I want to go to the jail cell for a moment. In your redeemed imagination, I want you to imagine yourself. I want you to imagine Peter and John in that cell. I want you to imagine the apostles in the early church who their two leaders, two of the main leaders of the early church are now in jail. And no one knows how the trial is going to go. They've seen trials with the Sanhedrin before not go well. No one knows what's going to happen, what's happening to them in jail tonight. No one knows these are two of the original 12 apostles. These are the early fathers of the early church. If they're taken out, what's gonna happen to the church? If these two men are killed, will the church survive? Will the church survive if it loses two of its key players? 
This is like the Titans today, right before kickoff, losing Derrick Henry and Mike Vrabel right before kickoff. Okay, the Titans are a football team here in town, for those of you. Uh, Mike Vrabel's the coach. Derrick Henry's our, our monster. Please pray for them. Uh, this, is like, this is like the 90s Bulls losing Pippen and Jordan. This is like Vandy football losing nobody. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Too soon, too soon. Anchor down. Um, this is, this is, sorry, it's low hanging fruit, okay? It's low hanging fruit. Um, this is like you two losing Bono and the Edge in the same night. What is gonna happen if we lose two of our key members? Isn't the mission gonna be over? Don't we need these men? Jesus, just 40 or 50 days prior to this, had commissioned these men to be his witnesses starting in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. He sent them out into the world to bear witness about him to the ends of the earth. What if this mission doesn't even make it out of Jerusalem? What if we can't even get out of our own hometown? These religious leaders, this Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, could have easily taken the legs out from this movement on this night, killing off Peter and John. What's gonna become of the mission of the church if all this is happening? What do we do with the threats? What do we do with the possible death of our two leaders? That's the power the Sanhedrin has right now. At least you can understand how Peter and John and the apostles will be feeling that. So they bring them on trial. Sanhedrin, again, not known for giving fair trials to people, especially Jesus, just a couple months before. And so they have this dialogue back and forth, like, look, dudes, we can't have this. There's people coming into your Jesus movement by the thousands. You're healing people in Jesus' name. We can't have this anymore. But they can't charge them on anything because there's a healed man standing in front of them too. And Peter and John are going, hey, we don't know what you're saying really. We don't really know if we should listen to you or God. You would have to be the judge of that. All that we can tell you is what we've seen and heard. All we can do is be witnesses. And we're telling you we healed this man in the power of Jesus' name. We haven't done anything wrong. And so they let Peter and John go. They have nothing to hold them on. But just before they go, look with me at verse 21. You can throw this up there. Look at verse 21. It says, and when they had further threatened them, that's the Sanhedrin to Peter and John, when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Now, further threatened, this is important for us given all the context to know really what we're dealing with. As in, hey, Peter and John, you keep this up and we know how to end you. Now, we're not gonna hold you tonight, but remember what we did to Jesus. Remember we didn't give him a fair trial either. Remember Jesus did nothing wrong either. And look what we did to him. And so as you go, just know as you're leaving here who we are and what power, what political power, what social power we hold. We know that the Romans want y'all squashed too. We are in with the Romans. They don't want political uprising. They don't want chaos. They want Pax Romana. They want Roman peace to reign here. So we can have you squashed in a moment. Now leave here, but this is strike one. And so they go back to their friends I'm sure, full of the, the tension that they're all feeling, the Sanhedrin that crucified Jesus is now telling us that they want us around no more as well. And they tell their friends all that has happened, and then they pray together. And that's what we're gonna look at is this prayer, what they pray for. But in order to understand what they prayed for and why it matters for us, we have to really get into the story because their prayer is coming after 25 verses of their reality. And we have to understand their reality to understand the power of what they actually prayed for and how they prayed. Which, by the way, side note, prayer should always be coming out of reality. 
Prayer doesn't deal well coming out of fantasy. Prayer doesn't deal well coming out of, well, this is where I thought I would be by now, or I really don't wanna be in this place of my reality, so I'm not gonna pray like my reality isn't real. Prayer should always be rooted in your reality, and their prayer is coming out of their reality. So what do we see their reality is? How about the pressure of the historical moment? Like Jesus himself has commissioned us to take this message to the ends of the earth, and we're not very far into it, and we've already almost botched it all. Like, what if this doesn't make it out of Jerusalem and we're the failures here? How about the passion for justice? Like, hey, Sanhedrin, this is not fair. Y'all are, y'all are threatening us and putting us on trial and this is unjust. Y'all are, not the one, y'all are not doing your jobs well. And then how about the very real threat on their lives being told that, hey, if you continue this, we know how to crucify people, remember? that knowing that what they are walking into could end in their death. So giving all of that cross pressure, they go back to the apostles and they pray. And what do they ask for? What do they pray for? Well, let me ask you, what would you pray for? I know what I would pray for. Hey, Jesus, could you let the Sanhedrin get in a donkey accident and be done? Like, could you take them out? Could you give us some power to wage war with the Sanhedrin so they can't put a stop to this? Hey, Jesus, will you give us justice here, Jesus? Because this is unjust that they're throwing us in jail and they're threatening to kill us. This is unfair. Hey, Jesus, will you give us a new set of circumstances? Jesus, you're the one that told us to go from here to Judea to the ends of the earth. Could you make that a little easier, please? We're just trying to do what you asked us to do. So could you give us a little bit of less resistance in the mission that you gave us? Jesus, will you change our circumstances? So let's read their prayer again. Let's actually read the end of their prayer again where the actual prayer request is made. They pray for four verses, verse 24 through 28, and then 29, they make their request. They haven't asked for anything up until this point. Verse 29, one sentence of what they asked for from the Lord, given all the pressure, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats, the Sanhedrin, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. I pray for boldness. The Greek word there is the same Greek word for confidence. They pray for confidence. In spite of all that they're facing, this is what they pray for. They pray for confidence. They don't pray for a change in circumstances. They don't pray for justice to be done. They don't pray that all the hardships would go, would go away. They don't pray that the Sanhedrin would get justice and get what's coming to them. They pray for confidence. Make us bold. Make us confident. Confidence is the assurance that what you've decided to put your trust in can bear the weight of the trust you're putting in it. So like, I have confidence that this stage is gonna hold me. I'm confident in that. And the trust that I'm putting in the stage, I'm confident that it can bear the weight of of the trust that I'm giving it. I'm confident that the sun will set tonight. I'm confident, because I've seen it happen enough times, I'm confident that the trust I'm putting in, the sun to set tonight, for the world to keep spinning, that it will keep happening. I'm confident of that. Confidence is assurance. In other words, confidence is the opposite of anxiety. Do you think that these apostles, the early church, had reason to be anxious? Do you think they had things that you would look at the laundry list of their life and you would go, yeah, I would be anxious about that too. People threatening to kill them. People dragging them before courts unjustly. How about the pressure to take the message of the resurrected king to the ends of the earth? How about the pressure to lead a Jesus movement with no prior experience? 
Like they've never planted a church before because churches hadn't been planted before. They don't know what they're doing. They speak one language and we're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. What are you talking about? How about all of that pressure? How about all of that anxiety? How about the call to leave their livelihoods and their homes and their homelands? Do you think they felt any anxiety? And if you do think they felt anxiety, can you relate to that? Do you ever look at the road laid before you as far over the horizon as you can see and feel anxious about it? Do you ever see the path of where you're headed and feel like there are things coming that you will be inadequate for? Do you look at the state of your life and think, what is coming for me, I can't, I can't foresee it, and so therefore I'm inadequate. I don't have what it takes to do what is laid before me. Do you ever look at the notion of becoming an empty nester and think, I don't even know if I like my spouse, much less, much less have to spend the rest of my life with just them. Or I found my identity for so long in just raising children, how in the world am I supposed to know who I am apart from doing this task? Or how about do you have a job that requires a lot of you and there's a lot on the table and you don't even know if you like it, much less if you can do it, so you get anxious. Or how about I'm single and I have no idea how to make the romantic thing happen, but I long for it and I want it. And so what do I have to change about me? What networks do I need to be in? What circles do I need to swim in? How, do I, how can I get all this together because I'm anxious that it's, it's you know, clock's ticking and I don't want to be single forever and how am, I gonna, how am I supposed to make this happen? I can't do it. Or how about raising kids? You ever see the status of your children and think, I don't know how I'm not going to royally screw them up. I don't know how I'm supposed to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't know what they need from me. I don't even know how I'm supposed to give it to them. And what it feels like they need from me, I don't think I can give it to them. You ever get anxious because you look at the reality of your life and you don't know what awaits you? You don't know how to protect yourself from it? How do I stop illness? How do I stop divorce? How do I stop relational strife? How do I stop financial stress? How do I, how do I stop it all? How do I, what if this is my lot in life forever? And so normally what we do when we feel anxious is we want confidence because confidence would, we think, quell our anxiety. Give me confidence as I face this anxious thing. And so we do what we've been trained to do. We need more self-confidence. You need more, you need to believe in yourself more. And so we try to find confidence in the self to try to quell and quench and quiet our anxiety. So maybe I'll put confidence in my abilities. And then I, I look at my abilities and I think, okay, I feel fit and apt and I feel like I have what it takes to do because of how I've been gifted and how I've worked and what, I, what my gifts are and what my abilities are. So I'll get myself confidence from what I've been gifted in to do. Or maybe I'll find self-confidence in my education. If I can get a few more letters behind my name, get a few more trainings, get more experience and be smarter and more logical, then no problems could come at me that may lay down the road, no future fears that may come at me. I'll be able to figure it out because I'm so educated. Or I try to find self-confidence in a bank account. Golly, this one. Maybe all the fears that could be coming at me down the road, if I had a couple zeros to the bank account, no problem could come, no pain could come, no fear could come that I couldn't buy my way or pay my way out of. And so I need more money if I'm gonna be at peace because the anxiety of what might be coming, what if I can't pay rent? What if I can't pay the medical bills? What if I can't pay the nursing home bills? What if I, what if I, have, to make enough, I have to have enough money to quell the anxiety of what I won't have? Or we try to get self-confident in health. 
I'm terrified of the, of, the, of the diseases and the illnesses and the things that could come. And what about cancer? And what about it? And how do, so maybe I'll just, I'll work out nine times a week and I'll, only, I'll eat zero calories and I won't ever touch a carb and gluten can say goodbye because I'm gonna be healthy enough to do, to face whatever it is I have to face so that no health problems could come. And again, all these are very real fears that cause very real anxieties, but we try to alleviate them with self-confidence. The problem is, is my self-confidence, my abilities, my education, my bank account, my health cannot hold the weight of my anxiety. It's never enough. You can never be smart enough. You can never make enough money. You can never be gifted enough. You can never be healthy enough. And so the anxiety doesn't go anywhere. The treadmill just gets turned up a few notches. I have to, I have to do more to quell and quench the anxiety. And if you can relate to this, which I imagine many of you can because you're breathing, anxiety, you know, and many of you know acutely, can be all-encompassing. It's got a psychological element. It's got an emotional element. It's got a spiritual element. It's got a physical element. It can affect our bodies. It can affect our souls. It can affect our spirits. So we lose sleep. We develop ulcers. We have panic attacks. We get depressed. I can't even get out of bed because I'm so anxious. And the despair and the fear and the worry exhausts us. And anxiety can quite literally existentially suffocate you. There's too, there's too much out there. There's too much of what could be. There's too much I'm inadequate for. There's too much that could happen. And the anxiety paralyzes us. There's a German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. I've read some of him. Really, I've read more people who've taught me what Heidegger said. Not, not that smart, okay? Not that self-confident. But I, the little bit I have read of Heidegger, uh, he, he invented a word. I wanna be smart enough to invent words one day. But Heidegger invented a word to describe this feeling. You ready for the word? Gewarfenheit. Isn't that an awesome word? Like, how would you even know, like, how do you even know if he made it? Like, where did you get that, Martin? Uh, Gewarfenheit. Here's what it literally means. Here's what Gewarfenheit literally is. It's thrownness. Like, if I took a stack of papers and just threw them in the air and they floated with no rhyme or reason, no aim, no direction, no guarantee on where they might land. It's just thrown. It's like jumping out of a plane without a chute. And that feeling of the, the stomach coming into your chest and, oh gosh, where, where am I going? How do I, how do I control where I'm gonna land? And I don't know, I, I can't see the bottom here and how long am I gonna fall for and what's the, what's the landing gonna be like? And Martin Heidegger says that's what life is, go wharf and hide. It's just, it's just like being thrown with no aim, with no certainty, no guarantees on how any of it's gonna work out. And so we all feel the pit in our stomach and go, well, I just need more, I need more self-confidence to quench my gewarfenheit because it feels like I've just been thrown and I don't have any guarantees. So what causes that in us? What causes the fear? What causes the anxiety? Well, anxiety is always a concern about the potential and not the actual. Anxiety is always a concern about the potential and not the actual. This is why in Matthew chapter six, we read it in our call to worship, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that do not be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow's, what isn't here yet, what's, what could be is always where anxiety lives and breathes and finds its life. 
Anxiety always involves some version of tomorrow, some version of what is not yet here, some version of what could potentially happen. Anxiety is a concern about that which we can't control. Do you know how much you can control your tomorrow? You can't control how long I'm gonna preach right now, much less what's gonna happen to you when you leave here. Like you have no control over tomorrow. You have no control over the potential of what could happen so the essence of anxiety is the desire to control that which we literally cannot control. That's why we're anxious. We feel the need to control in an area where there is no possibility of control. Anxiety is a will to control the uncontrollable. And so we hear news stories, and we hear of tragedy, and we have our own past trauma, big T and little t trauma, and that comes into the present moment and all the things of what could be, and it fills our minds with storylines of how this might go or how this probably is gonna go and where I see this road ending. And as we look into the future, all the tomorrows, all the potential, we realize we can't control it. And we've got a past that tells us how these things normally go, and so we, we say things like this, here we go again. Here we go again, because that word again right there, again is such a stress-filled word because we know exactly how this instance is gonna go again. I can already tell you how this is gonna go again. When I look at my circumstances, when you look at any of your circumstances, this is like one plus one always equals two. If you study your circumstances and that's all you focus on, if all you're looking at is the circumstances of your life, studying circumstances, one plus one always ends in anxiety too. If all you are looking at is your circumstances, you will find somewhere where you are unprepared and unable to control the uncontrollable. It is not possible to only focus on your circumstances and not end in an anxious place because circumstances are fickle and circumstances can change on a dime. And circumstances are powerful. They're more powerful than you. And you can't change them or control them. So in essence, we want the power that only God has. And when we don't have that power, we get anxious. We want the crystal ball of tomorrow's assurances. And we even want the, you know, we would scream at Carrie Underwood, Jesus, don't take the wheel, I need the wheel. Give me the wheel because you don't drive this car very well. And I don't like when you're in the driver's seat. And so give me the wheel. And the arrogance of that is saying this. We believe that if we had the wheel of our life and we could drive the car and we could control our tomorrows, we think we have infinite wisdom that we would drive the car perfectly. We think we know what is best for us. We think we know how to plan it out and plot it out and don't get any surprises. We think we could do it better than him. Give me the control. That if I know how my tomorrows will all turn out, then I won't be anxious. And so we grasp for control. We grasp for self-confidence. Give me more money. Give me more abilities. Give me more education. Give me more. Give me more. Give me, give me something to make me feel like I'm controlling tomorrow. So these apostles in Acts chapter four, they have plenty to be anxious about. Their two leaders were in jail the night before in front of the same court system that crucified their leader. And then they have this task set before them with now this outside threat that's trying to shut them down at every turn. And so these apostles, this early church has plenty to be anxious about and they pray for confidence. What in the world do they have to be confident in? Like, what do you think they're basing their confident prayer in? 
Lord, give us confidence in ourselves. Give us confidence in our abilities. No, these are uneducated fishermen. There is no confidence in their abilities. They speak one language and they've been called to go to the ends of the earth with a Sanhedrin that wants to crucify them. You think they're confident in their circumstances changing? Like how, how confident do you think they were? Like, man, Jesus, I bet tonight, I bet tonight you're gonna change the hearts of the Sanhedrin. They're gonna come pleading for the mercy of Jesus. They're gonna be on our team because that's what you're gonna do for us. No, they have no reason to be confident in any of their circumstances changing. No history would tell them. No experience would tell them that your circumstances will probably get better tomorrow. So what in the world is their confidence rooted in? Their confidence is not rooted in their circumstances changing or even in them having their life go the way that they want their life to go. Their confidence is rooted in something that their circumstances can't touch. And that's where their confidence comes from. See, they pray for confidence in verse 29, but we have to look at the four verses of prayer that lead up to their request for confidence because they're rooting their request for confidence in the four verses of prayer that lead up to that. Start halfway through verse 24 for me. This is their prayer. We're gonna reread what they lead, how they pray leading up to their request for confidence. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now they're quoting Psalm chapter two right here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. That's the end of the Psalm quote. And they come back to their circumstances. Four, rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, brief history lesson, but here's what they're doing. They quote Psalm 2, which, side note, in their prayer, they quote a psalm. You need to know that Deep spiritual prayers are wildly unoriginal. Like you don't need to sound flowery and spiritual when you pray. Like just quote scripture. That's all that the, the church fathers do. That's all that Christians do. Like you don't have to come up with language that makes you sound smart. Just take the words. He's like Psalm is a prayer book. They're quoting Psalm 2. And here's what they say. They're, psalm 2 is a psalm all about the Lord's anointed king, anointed or Christ, all about the Lord's anointed king and what the Lord intends on doing and accomplishing through his king and how set against the Lord's anointed king will be the nations and the peoples who are trying to stop what the Lord wants to do through his king. But Psalm 2 says it doesn't matter who's plotting against the Lord and his king. It doesn't matter what they throw at him. The Lord is going to accomplish through his king what he wants to accomplish through his king. That's Psalm 2. And then they drop this bomb. And they say, hey, Psalm 2 that David wrote, no one really knew exactly what he was talking about, but now we've seen Psalm 2 come to fruition and play out in the life of Jesus. That God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish through his king, and the nations and the peoples were plotting against the Lord's anointed king, Jesus, Herod, Pilate, the peoples, the Gentiles. They were plotting against the Lord and his king, and guess what? They did some stuff to him, but guess what happened in the end? It was used to accomplish what God set out to accomplish through his king. And so here's what they're saying. They're taking that logic, they're using logic in their prayer, and they're saying, wait, 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 wait. 
People were set against Jesus. People did evil things to Jesus. Darkness came against Jesus, and guess what? It still worked out that God was going to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish through his king. It's as if they're saying that yes, Herod and Pilate were acting and they were sinning and they were committing heinous crimes against King Jesus, but they were like puppets in a play. Yes, they were acting on their own will. Yes, they were sinning, but God had already planned for them to make the choices they were making and God had already planned for them to do it. And even though Pilate and even though Herod and even though Jesus got a a raw deal and even though he was unjustly crucified, it was all a part of God's plan to redeem the world. And then they say, they drop this in verse 28. All of the actions of these evildoers who were plotting against Jesus, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here's what they just said. God used what man intended for evil and he did alchemy on it. He used it for good. God took what man intended for evil and he transformed it and he used it for good. That's why they start their prayer with this little adjective. Because they are are taking all that they've seen the Lord do in history and through Jesus that they were witnesses of and they're going, oh, wait, 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 wait. If that was true for Jesus, maybe it's true for us too. Maybe even all the evil that would come and assault us, maybe even all the darkness that would come against us. What if, what if, what if God is good enough and big enough and powerful enough to do alchemy on even the evil that happens to us and use it for good? That's why they start the prayer with this adjective. Sovereign. And man, I know, I know even saying that word out loud, that word can sting. I know there are weeks where you don't want to hear that word about the Lord, sovereign Lord. I know you, like me, have questions about that word. But here's what that word means. And I'm taking from one of my old dead friends, Charles Spurgeon, who said this about this word sovereign. Here's what it means. He rules and he overrules. He will make all things work together for good. He will sovereignly bring you through your fire. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. That's not true if God isn't sovereign. And, he's, and the, the apostles are praying this to say, Like, look, use your eyes and your logic, early church. They're saying, look at the worst that the world could throw at the kingdom of God. The unjust murder of the son of God. All the evil and all the darkness and all the betrayal and all the the sorrow and all the, this is not how we would have had this go. All of that is going on to Jesus. And look what happened. God was able to use all of that evil instead for ultimate good. That's how sovereign he is. He's sovereign enough to take ultimate evil and overrule it and turn it into his ultimate good. And the apostles recount this tale. They recount this story in their prayer, which again is another side road on the beauty of prayer. Do you know in prayer, you don't have to again sound flowery or spiritual. Just recount to the Lord what he's done. That's all they're doing. They're quoting a psalm and just telling the Lord what he's already done. And then they make a request. And here's what they're saying. 
if the darkest actions of evil couldn't stop God from using it for good, then there is no tomorrow of our life, they're saying, that they could possibly face that would stop God from using it for their good too. They're going, Jesus faced evil opposition. Jesus faced people betraying him. Jesus faced an unjust trial and an unjust murder. And somehow, Lord, you're sovereign enough and you're good enough that this was all a part of your plan to use even evil and alchemize it and turn it into good for us because you used the evil of Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jewish people who crucified Jesus and you saved us with it. You crucified Jesus for us and you used evil men to do it. So I guess then, Jesus, there's no evil we could face with this same Sanhedrin. There's no evil we could face. There's no sorrow or loss or unjust happenings that could happen to us that would stop you from using it for our good too. This is why they pray for confidence. This is how they're able to even muster the words to pray for confidence. They're saying, make us confident, Lord, in how relentlessly good you will be to us. Make us confident of that. Make us so confident, make us bold, make us assured that nothing will stop you from being good to us. Regardless of what happens in our circumstances, regardless of what happens to us, make us confident in just how relentlessly good you will be to us. Do you know what this means for your life? Do you know what this means for your anxiety? You know what this means as you face a thousand unknown tomorrows that you have zero control over? Do you know what it means? It means you cannot make a decision or face a circumstance that will stop God from being good to you. You can't do it. You cannot make a decision or face a circumstance that will stop God from being good to you. It would quite literally be a cosmic impossibility. You cannot make a decision or face a circumstance that will stop God from being good to you. You don't have to hit the decision matrix right on the bullseye so that all the pieces fall right where they're supposed to. You don't have to marry the right person. You don't have to get the right job. You don't have to get into the right school. You don't have to worry about missing out on some opportunity and maximizing the joy and making your life as epic as you want it to be. You don't even have to have all the circumstances align the way that you want them to align. You don't have to do that. And you're free to not have to do that because you can't make a decision or face a circumstance that could stop God from being good to you. And that's where your confidence comes from. The pressure is actually off where you don't actually have to get it all right and make it all right and face all the things in just the right way in order to make sure that you have what you need to face what you're facing. And when you doubt it, when you think there's no way, there's no way that I could choose to run my life off the road or to take this train off the rails. There's no way if I got T-boned and I had no clue and the pain that could come to me, there's no way that that could still work out for my good. It's not possible. So when you doubt it and when I doubt it, here's where your proof is. It's in the crucifixion of Jesus. Herod and Pilate and the people plotted evil against God's son. They unjustly killed him. And God took even that evil. Can you imagine something more evil than unjustly killing the son of God? Like, he did no wrong. He's never done any wrong. 
He only loved his enemies. He only served the poor. He only came to love and to serve, and people crucified him for it. Can you imagine a more heinous evil? And God took the most heinous of evils and made it for our good. Which means none of your tomorrows are a match for God's good providence. None of them. None of your possibles, none of your potentials are a match for God's good providence. This is why Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at it in the call to worship again, he's going, hey, 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 look at the world. Look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air. Look at them. They barely have brains. And guess what? They're not worried about tomorrow. They don't worry about where their food's gonna come from. They don't worry who's gonna clothe them and they're dressed in splendor and they eat the feasts of kings. You don't have to worry about it. And then Jesus says this, are you not much more valuable than they? Like God didn't send his son to be crucified for flowers. He sent him for you. Are you not much more valuable than the lilies and the birds? And God takes care of them. He's going to give you what you need too. Because you can't make a decision that would stop God from being good to you because he's already decided to be good to you. You can't out his mercy. You can't out-ruin his plan. You can't apply foolishness to enough situations where he would go, you know what? I think they just, they deserve this now. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And when you doubt it, look at the lilies and the flowers and the, and the birds. He will give you what you need to And I know, I know this is a little harder to swallow when runners in Memphis are abducted. I know this is harder to swallow when you're standing in a visitation line like I was yesterday for a precious man. I know this is harder to swallow when the pain is chronic and the sin is more chronic. I know you're going, how can all of this be true? How can the circumstances of my life not topple over this thing that you're saying? Because all of those things make us ask questions like this. Where was God's good providence when that happened? Why does he let this stuff happen anyway? Why does he let the horrific evils happen? If he's so sovereign, why is he letting this happen? And I gotta be honest, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. I I really wish I did. And it gets worse because the Bible doesn't give an answer either. So I don't know what the answer is, but I know what the answer is not. The answer is not that he has stopped being good to you. The answer is not that he doesn't love you with an infinite love. And I don't know how he's gonna use it all for good, but I know when we look at Jesus and the evil that murdered him, he predestined his death for your sake. And so the answer to our current darkness, the answer to our current anxiety, the answer to our current sorrow cannot be that he doesn't love us. It cannot be that he isn't good. And the only way to be confident of that is to recall what he's done for us in Jesus. Remember what he's done for us in Jesus. Remember the evil that he alchemized for good in Jesus. That what man intended for evil, God intended for our good. Let's pray and then we'll sing this out together. Sovereign Jesus, it's hard sometimes to say those words out loud. 
that given the fear and given the pain and given the loss and given the unknowns, given all the potential tomorrows, we believe there is much to be anxious about. And so make us confident, not that we will have the life we want, but make us confident that no life we walk into could stop you from being good to us. Hold our face at Calvary until we believe it, we pray. In your name, amen.